verses in several parts of Scripture uh, tonight. Uh, for our, our guest, just so you know, uh, it is not our typical way of things to uh, take a subject from the culture and then float around in different parts of the Bible to try and, and make sense of how we're to think about it. Uh, our typical way of preaching is uh, what we call expository, verse by verse, and uh, that's what we do on Sunday mornings. Um, but uh, we simply can't miss uh, that in the pages of the New Testament, especially and especially in Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mounts and in the epistles, uh, we find warnings to the churches about false teachers and false teaching. And we want to be on guard, we want to be sober-minded, we want to be alert. Uh, sometimes false teaching comes up from within a church. Um, I think even more often false teaching comes from outside into the church. And right now there are a number of ideas in our culture that are growing. And so what we're trying to do in this series is just try and provide some help and hopefully some, some biblical thinking and discernment on some of these um, ideas that uh, I think may prove to be a real threat to the people of God. Last Sunday evening, uh, we started by talking about the modern social justice movement. And I, I just don't have time to review everything that we talked about last Sunday night, so I'm not going to, to try. The main concern uh, that I had there is that the modern social justice movement includes within it a redefinition of justice, uh, a departure from what has been historically understood as justice, and more important, a departure from a biblical understanding of justice. Uh, in the Bible, justice has to do with precept. In the modern social justice movement, it has to do with privilege. So biblical justice has to do with precepts, thou shalt, thou shalt nots. Uh, universal moral principles of conduct to which all are equally held accountable. So it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, rich or poor, what your ethnic background is. If you steal, you've done wrong, there's consequences. This is, this is biblical justice. It's based on precept, and it is something that is applied equally to all people. In the modern social justice movement, uh, justice is defined as equalizing Groups, helping various groups within a society uh, find a level of equality in their voice, in their power, and in their resources. And so simply for one group to have more of a voice than another group is considered unjust. And to do justice is to help the group that has less to have more and to help the group that has more to have less. Uh, we saw last week that this is built on ideas that come out of Marxism. And, of course, Marxism, when applied to economics in a culture, uh, can lead to communism. And Jonathan and I this weekend had the opportunity for a couple of hours to step into the National Museum of the Marines uh, in Quantico. And if you ever get a chance to go, it's a free museum, and it is really well done. I was very impressed. And what it does is you get to walk through with the Marines, and the, particularly their role in the various wars, you walk through a timeline of the various wars that the Marines have been in. And we just couldn't help but notice, as the storyline was presented so well in that museum, that throughout the 20th century, in war after war after war, it was these very Marxist ideas uh, that we unpacked last week that led to the deaths of millions and millions of people. And so uh, it was very sobering in light of last Sunday's discussion uh, to, to just have a fresh reminder that these aren't just abstract ideas that don't have real-world consequences. Uh, these ideas have had real-world consequences in the past, and they will continue to do so in the future, and they're quite serious. The other thing I want to say from the outset is that uh, out on the sign, uh, I have uh, the statement that we're looking at the Bible and uh, the woke movement, and somehow I went all last Sunday night and never even mentioned the word woke. 
And you might have been wondering what that was about. So just, just to be clear, what does it mean in our culture to be, to be woke? Well, if you are, let's say, one of the more privileged groups, so especially, for example, if you are white or if you are male, um, if you come from a wealthy background, uh, if you are a full citizen of the United States, these are all considered privileged positions within our culture. If you recognize your privilege and that there are other groups around you that have less power, voice, and resources than you, and you work to give them more, including sacrificing some of your own for their sake, that means you are woke. You get it. You have seen. You understand if you have come to recognize the privilege you have and are working to help the less privileged to become equal. So what is wokeness? It is an awareness of privilege and an eagerness to work for social justice as we defined it last week. Now, what's going to happen over the next several weeks is we're going to be applying some of those framework and foundational things we talked about last week to particular issues that are popular in the moment. And one issue that was quite popular in the last presidential campaign and is already becoming popular in this presidential campaign, and isn't it amazing how it just seems now we're constantly in an endless presidential campaign, um, but it is the issue of income inequality. And so just like last week, I'm going to take just a few minutes to try and explain the concept and what those who are promoting these ideas are saying, and then I'm going to spend the bulk of our time saying, how does the Bible help us to think about this particular issue? So first, what is this idea of income inequality? Well, it refers to simply different incomes made by different people, and especially different groups of people in a society. Uh, Often when people talk about income inequality, uh, they're thinking especially of the wage gap in which some people receive far higher wages than others. Uh, If you've been watching... uh, Things in the last couple of weeks about the, the women's soccer team that uh, uh, they just won. I know nothing about soccer. The World Cup, is that what they call it? Okay. And, um, and you know, one of the first things that came out of that was we have to fix the, the, the wage gap. Why is it that these female soccer players are paid less than professional men soccer players? And I saw that uh, Secret Deodorant was donating a half million dollars or something to help, to help meet that, that wage gap. And so this is something that people have on their mind, that some people seem to receive higher wages than others. It has become a major issue in our country in recent years as the top one-tenth of 1% of people in our country make hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars in a year, while there are millions of other people in our country who live in relative poverty. And so the question is asked, is that right? Is it right for one person to be making astronomical amounts of money, as some of these CEOs do, when that same amount of money could be spread out among hundreds or even thousands of people and give them far better lives than what they know. And so this has been the driving argument behind, for example, the Bernie Sanders campaign. And by the way, for each of these subjects, I'm trying to go to the people who actually hold these views to get the information because I want to represent these groups rightly and fairly and make sure I am doing doing them justice. So... Uh, What does Bernie Sanders recommend about the fact that we have a few people in our country, one-tenth of one percent, who's making hundreds of millions, sometimes in the billions of dollars in a year, and then you have millions living in relative poverty? So he is recommending a progressive tax scheme where the percentage that you pay in taxes increases as you reach new levels of income. Now, that's already implemented and in place in our country to a degree. But in particular, he is recommending that if anyone makes more than $400,000 a year, that all the money made above that $400,000 a year should be taxed at a rate of 40%, and that that money should be given to help the poor through government programs like free health care for all and free education for all. 
So, so notice, by the way, that this doesn't mean that people are going to start receiving equal pay in their work. Uh, wages are still going to be different. Uh, a pro football player might still receive millions of dollars in a year. And a social worker might still receive a salary of $28,000 a year. But the idea is that through the government programs paid for by the very rich, the social worker will get some of the same economic benefits as the very rich person. They'll get health care. They'll get solid education, all provided through these taxes on the very wealthy. So Bernie Sanders and others are actually now beginning to move away from using the term income inequality. And you'll notice they're speaking more and more about economic inequality. Uh, the aim is to help people be more equal in overall economic terms, not primarily equal in terms of their wages or in their salaries. Uh, I should note here that last year, 40% of the tax revenue that came into the federal government came from the top 1% of earners. So 1% uh, of our country pays 40% of the monies that the government receives in taxes. Half the, half the adult population, uh, the bottom 50% of our nation financially, uh, they paid only 2.7% of all the tax revenue that came into the federal government. So the top 1% is paying 40% of the taxes. Uh, the lower 50% of Americans are only paying 2.7%. Of the taxes. So we already have a graduated tax system where the wealthy pay a higher percentage of taxes on their income than others. Now, the big thing to note here is that this is seen as an issue of justice. It is declared to be unjust that some are receiving these huge sums of money and are living in, a, in these lavish lifestyles while others are living in relative poverty. And that is seen as unjust. And if you're going to be a social justice warrior, you want to see an equalizing of this. And remember, they think about this, critical theory, they're thinking about this in terms of groups. And so they want to see different subsets of groups in our nation coming to have an equality in their standard of living. So on the radio, on NPR, if you're watching you know, the news, you'll often talk about, hear them talk about this in terms of, well, how are Hispanics in our country doing as compared to others? How are um, the LGBTQ uh, folks doing in this country as opposed to others on these kinds of issues? They choose a group. And then are they having the same standard of living and getting the same economic benefits as another group? Okay, so how does the Bible teach us to think about this particular issue? So I'm going to give you several, several points. I don't know how many there are, but I'm going to give you some points and uh, we'll, we'll walk through them together. Number one, God created people with different interests different gifts, and different abilities. And this means that different incomes are woven into the fabric of this world. So we see this idea of specialization, that you find that you have certain talents, you have certain gifts, and that you are geared in certain ways, and you find a way of making a living that, that fits who you are, and your, this neighbor down the street has found a totally different way of making a living that fits who they are. But society doesn't value each of your work the same. So the professional football player who happens to be a quarterback and you know, will find that the nation, that the culture, that the society around him really, really values his skill set. So much so that, that people are paying him outlandish sums of money to throw a ball. While someone over here who has devoted their life to uh, trying to help drug addicts recover from their addictions will often find that our culture has also valued that at a certain level. Driven by the market, and they're going to be making far less amount of money. <laughs> But we see this specialization that God created people to be different, to have different gifts, different um, uh, talents, different abilities as early as Genesis uh, and as early as chapter 4. So look at Genesis chapter 4 beginning in verse 17. So this is, this is Cain, right? Uh, Cain has already killed Abel. 
And this is now saying, all right, let's look at the line that comes from Cain. Let's see the descendants that come from him. Remember, God had given Adam the charge to have dominion over the earth, cultivate the earth, work the earth. Genesis 4, verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad. Irad fathered Mahuahel. Mahuahel fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah. The name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Okay? So you can picture some of the uh, Bedouins, for example, who travel around with their livestock in tents, a very mobile lifestyle uh, throughout the Middle East even today. Uh, uh, Let's see. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So we see here already the creation of musical instruments from his line. We see that people in his line had had a, a gear towards musical ability, the arts, creative abilities. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So we're seeing some specialization in the way of, of metallurgy, right? The ability to invent and create and fashion things in fire, uh, to create new technologies. And so already at the very beginning, we're seeing that God created people to have different talents, different abilities uh, that were not all going to be the same. Now, different societies are going to value different kinds of work in different ways and especially at different times. So for example, maybe you are a blacksmith. Um, If you are a blacksmith in colonial America, you are one of the most important tradesmen in the town. Uh, Most blacksmiths in colonial America were quite well off because they were doing an important work a work that everybody needed, especially if they rode horses and wanted their horseshoes worked on and all that kind of thing. And so they were very well off. How much does a, a blacksmith make today? Well, if you're doing the same kind of work that they did in the days of the colonies, uh, you are a very small group who were probably interested in that only for historical reasons. You probably went to the College of William and Mary where they still train you how to do that. You're probably working at Tryon Palace or Colonial Williamsburg where people go and watch you do that for fun and you don't make much money at all. Now, if you are a uh, blacksmith who is skilled for particular industries, according to a quick Google search, the average salary for a modern blacksmith today is 35000 So certainly not valued at the same level as it was in the days of the colonies. So in God's providence, in the way he creates us and the opportunities he gives us, different people are entrusted with different amounts of resources. People are just not going to make the same amount of money or have the same resources. I think one of the most important things for us to see here is Matthew 25. So turn there. Turn to the parable in Matthew 25. And we're going to start in verse 14. And we're not going to read the whole parable. I just want you to see how the parable begins. The parable of the talents or the minas. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it, the kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability, and then he went away. What I want you to see here is that in our culture's current way of thinking, what this master just did was unjust. That it was not right for him to give one servant five and another two and another one, even though they were given according to their abilities. It would be considered unfair. But that can't be accurate because we know that in this parable, the master who's going away and entrusting resources to his servants is actually the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there is no injustice in God. And there is no injustice in Christ. Uh, The fact is, Christ gives to his people differing degrees of talent and ability and spiritual giftedness and 
earthly resources and valuables. And there is no injustice in that. Because at the end of the day, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns the hills. God owns it all. And he is free to distribute it in his providence as he sees fit. And we are called not to covet what the others around us have that may be more than we have, but to be faithful in seeking to steward well what has been trusted to us. So just the first principle biblically is that people are going to have different uh, levels of resources. It's just the way God made us. It is woven into the fabric of the universe, and it cannot be changed, though many have tried. Second, we are to embrace our uniqueness and not determine our worth based on income. So here's one of the problems with the way our culture is thinking on this issue. It seems to be saying that as long as one group of people seems to be making more money or have more resources or receiving more income than another group of people, the first group is therefore more worthwhile, more important, more successful. Um, In the Old Testament, a person with greater income was not to be treated any better in the eyes of the law than a person with lesser income. If you want to see that, it's Deuteronomy 16, 19, or I can just read it to you. Uh, Deuteronomy 16, verse 19 says this. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. And that's in the instructions to judges. The idea here is that you are not to give regard to someone based on the amount of money that they have in their checking account. And this principle of not showing partiality, not regarding people based on their income, it it permeates the New Testament. And I'm just going to flip quickly and just read you some of these verses. So Luke chapter 20 and verse 21, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, They asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So here is something that marked Jesus. That even those who were against him, those seeking to trap him in his words, those who would ultimately put him to death, they confess this about Jesus. Jesus, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. We've seen how you act around the Pharisees and we've seen how you act around the prostitutes. And you seem to treat everyone without partiality. You treat them with dignity. You treat them with respect. You you don't put one above the other. Uh, Ephesians 6 verse 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. I'm reading Galatians 6, 9, which is also a very important verse that we could talk about at some point. It's one of my favorites, actually. But Ephesians 6, 9 says this, Masters, do the same to them, your servants, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So Paul says in Ephesians that when you think about God, God does not have regard with whether you're the slave master or the slave. He wants you to be faithful with where you are. And that if that slave master thinks he's going to get to heaven and stand before God, and he's going to have somehow an advantage over his slave because he was the slave master, uh, Paul says absolutely not. Stop your threatening knowing that God is both their master and yours, and there is no partiality in him. Uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I won't spend a lot of time there because I think we looked at that one uh, last week. But this is where uh, James says, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he talks about if a man comes into your assembly and he's got fine jewelry and he's wearing really nice clothing, don't be showing honor to him while the man that comes in in rags is is being said, we'll go sit at my feet over there. Right? He says, that's not the way the church is to operate. Why? Because that's not how Christ lived. And that's not who our God is. We are not to regard a person's worth based on their income. Because again, 
Your gifts and abilities that God gave to you, they may be valued one way by our society right now, and you could travel to another part of the world, and you would find that those gifts were valued a very different way. And if you went to a, somehow time travel to the future or to the past, you would find that your gifts, abilities, and skills are valued very differently at different times. It's a fickle way of understanding your worth, and we shouldn't give way to it. How should we think about our worth? Well, first of all, we should think about the fact that we're all image bearers of God, Genesis 1, 26 through 29, uh, that we have dignity because differing from every other part of creation, we bear the image of God. What God does in macro, we get to do in micro, right? Uh, we get to, to, to do much of what God does on a limited, partial scale and represent him in this world. So there's an inherent dignity there. But then also we're called to assess ourselves based on our faithfulness in the particular callings that Christ has given to us. So I am not to worry about the particular callings that Christ gave you and sit over here and be jealous. Why couldn't I have done that? Why couldn't I have those abilities? Why couldn't I have those skills? Look at how the world applauds what they have. Look at how the other people in our church applauds what they have. I wish I, I was able to be like that. No, Christ says, be faithful in what I have called you to do. And success in the Christian life is not judged on fame or resources or income. It's judged on faithfulness. Uh, Matthew 25 and verse 30 says this. Matthew 25 and verse 30. I have to read more than that. Uh, so this is still the parable of the talents. And I'm going to go back to uh, verse 24. Uh, he who also had received the one talent came forward. So remember, there was the five, the two, and the one. This is the person that received the one. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So as I was afraid and went, and I hid the talent in the ground, here you have what is yours. So he didn't cause it to grow. He didn't steward it well. He didn't cultivate it. Right? He didn't use it. Uh, he just hid it away. But the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. Because the five made his ten. Right? For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Listen to the words here about how Christ deals with the unfaithful servant. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Unfaithfulness in the service of Christ is seen as a mark of an unbeliever. Where striving to be faithful with what Christ has entrusted to you is seen as the mark of one who is a genuine believer, born again, and who will be rewarded for their service in heaven. So we have an inherent dignity because we're created in, in God's image. But we're also to be assessing ourselves. Was today successful? Well, are you faithful in, in seeking to honor Christ? Did you pursue the callings that he has given you up to his glory for his honor? And then, of course, um, we are to assess ourselves based on our godliness. As we're fulfilling our callings, are we doing so in a Christ-honoring way? Are we speaking the truth? Are we being kind to the people around us? Are we refraining from uh, those vices that dishonor the name of Jesus? Uh, this is how we're to think about ourselves. Third point. Any ambition for more income should be rooted in a desire to serve Christ, not in discontentment. So this movement of income inequality, increasingly now economic inequality, it plays on the desires of people to have more. Uh, it says to those groups of people who generally, generally have less than others, it says it is right for you to be angry and upset that you don't have what others have. And you are to feel offended 
that they have what you don't have and you are to demand that they give you what you don't have. It is appealing to covetousness. It is appealing to greediness. But we're to have nothing to do with those things in Christ. These things should not mark the Christian church. We are to be marked by contentment with what God has given us, knowing that He will take care of us. And if we pray for God to bless us with more, it should not be for our sake, but for His sake. Right? God, would you entrust me with a little more that I might use it well for your glory? It's, it's Psalm 67 where Israel cries out to God for blessings on Israel. And then by the end of the psalm, you realize they're not praying for God to bless Israel for Israel's sake. They're praying for God to bless Israel for the sake of the nations. Right? God bless us that we might be able to bless the world. A few passages. I know you know this to be true, but let's, let's put some Bible behind it. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 14 Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? Right? So this is, this is people coming to Jesus, and it's different groups of people, actually, uh, coming to Jesus and asking, what is your teaching for us? What is your teaching for our group? What is your teaching for our category? And in this case, it was Roman soldiers. And Roman soldiers were infamous for using the power of the sword and Roman might to get money off of people, okay? to put people in situations where they were taking bribes And so what does Jesus say to them? Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Did you know that's a command of Christ? Be content with your wages. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a holy ambition. It doesn't mean, and especially men, because I think a real mark of manhood is a desire for increasing responsibility from God. Um, But there should be a bottom line default contentment with whatever the Lord gives me to work with for his name. I will be content with that. And if this is where I am right now, if this is the paycheck I'm receiving, if this is the, the, the income that I have, I will be content with this because my hope isn't in my paycheck. My hope is in the Lord. Be content with your wages. And then there's. Paul's very sobering statement, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. If we have food, if we have clothing, Paul says, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. You know what a snare is? Right? Trapped. Okay. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And could, he, could he use more graphic language here to talk about the dangers of those who covet riches? For the love of money, not money, for money, no, it's not that money is the root of all evil, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So we need to beware a discontented spirit that causes us to not trust God and to always be craving, uh, longing for more than we have, especially this desire for riches. Okay, fourth point. The poor will always be with us, and we should seek to care for them. Um, one of the noble goals of Marxist ideology, one of the noble goals of those pursuing uh, economic equality is the idea of saying we, we want to end poverty. We want to no longer have the poor among us. Uh, the problem, of course, and I'm sure you, you see this, is that as long as there are going to be people who have different levels of resources than others, there's always going to be a group that is poorer, and there's always going to be a group that is richer. So there are different levels of poverty. And there are some people in our nation who are truly, truly poor, but they are very rare compared to the poverty that you see in some other parts of the world. And so we just have to understand that that this word Poor, poverty, it gets defined within each culture, within each society, compared to other groups of people and what they have. Uh, Jesus said, Mark 14, verse 7, um, 
For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. Okay? So you will always have the poor with you, and when you want, you can do good for them. Now you say, all right, Justin, but what about this, this Marxist ideal of being able to have equal distribution? Of you have the state, and the state distributes resources equally among all the peoples. So when we were in Romania, uh, they were showing us some of the buildings that at one time had belonged to the wealthy in Bucharest. And what had happened is that when communism came into that country, they forcibly moved the wealthy out of those buildings and they took many of the poor and uh, many of the gypsy people in Romania and moved them into those buildings. It was this idea of trying to pursue an equality of resources, an economic equality. So, so what's wrong with that? Why will that not work? Well, for one thing, Human beings are fallen, and any system that you try and implement is going to be corrupt because people are corrupt. Uh, There's always going to be those who play the system, rig the system, uh, and use it to their own advantage. Um, And I can give examples of that that were shared from Romania, but I'll do that another time. Uh, Then, of course, anytime you have a system uh, like communism where you're trying to have the state distribute resources equally among people, you're still going to have the people who are the state. And they automatically have a kind of power that everybody else in that society doesn't have and the opportunity to use that power for their own advantage. And so we think about animal farm, right? Uh, All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Uh, This idea that there's got to be a controlling group who's always going to be more valuable than the others. But the poor will always be with us. We have the word of Christ on that. There will always be the poor with us. And we have an obligation to the poor. And I just want to be very clear about this. Because even as last week we tried to say that we cannot adopt modern notions of social justice the way it's currently being presented and defined. Do not hear me saying that we reject biblical justice. And that we reject biblical mercy. Christians are called to be a people who care for the poor. Galatians 2.10, Paul talks about his interaction with the apostles after he came to Christ. And he says, the one thing they asked, the one thing they asked as I was going out to the Gentiles was that I remember the poor. And Paul said, it was just the thing that I wanted to do. Just the, he said, here's where me and those other apostles, and we were just trying to make sure that we were on the same page and that we had the same gospel. We were preaching the same message. And, and, and here... They're sending me out. What's, what's the one word they had for me? That's exactly what I wanted. To make sure that along the way we're caring for the poor. Turn to Isaiah 58. I, I love Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 beginning in verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And now he's saying, here's here's what my people are saying to me. Verse 3, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So you you hear the argument, God from Israel, why why are you not paying? We're doing these religious things, we're fasting, we're praying, why are you not blessing? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So here were these national fast days that were being declared. Here was these proclamations. Israel, we're going to fast to seek the Lord's blessing. And yet, what were the people doing? Well, they were fasting while their workers were being oppressed, while they were being wicked towards one another, while they were engaging in violence. This is what the prophets point out over and over again. 
this hypocrisy of being religious while ungodly. Of, of going through religious rituals, going through religious practices, while at the same time not having a heart for the moral principles that Christ, that God has given us. Keep going. Verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And now he tells us what kind of fast he really wants. Verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free and so to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. So, so what is God calling his people to do? He's calling them to do justice, right? To, uh, to make sure that they loose the bonds of wickedness. But he's also calling them to, to show mercy to those who are in need around them. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house. Cover the naked. And what does God say he will do to Israel if they do that? Verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Don't you love it? At dawn when the light comes over the horizon. The sunlight begins to just penetrate everything. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and shall cry. And he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and let your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. And make your bones strong and you you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So God's people are to be marked by compassion and mercy and generosity, a willingness to deny ourselves and sacrifice for the sake of those who are in need around us. We are to care for the poor. Paul said, the very thing I was eager to do. We ought to be eager. Why? God blesses the merciful. And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, we find that Christ expects his people to do this. Because he doesn't say, you should give to the poor. He says, and when you give to the needy. Which I've always liked it. And when you give to the needy. It was just assumed. If you're God's people, this is how you're going to live. If, if you've been saved by God from hell, if you have had your sins forgiven, if you have the promise that God is going to meet every need that you have, just as he feeds the birds and, and clothes the flowers of the fields, if you're living in that reality, you're going to have the, the security in Christ to now be able to let go of your clenched fist and open your hands and give to those in need around you. So it's not give to the need, it's when you give. Because God's people will give. Number five, the Bible does not affirm forced state redistribution of wealth, but charity from the heart. So we, we just finished Romans 13 a few months ago. We spent a lot of time looking at the proper role of government in those passages. The care of the poor was not included as a fundamental aspect of what governments are to do. I'll just say that again. The care of the poor was not in that passage as a fundamental aspect of what government is to do. Justice for the poor was included. If somebody's taking advantage of the poor, if somebody is, is using false measurements to, to charge the poor more than other people, that would be government's role. But care for the poor is never given as a God-required role for government. Uh, this is the difference between equality of opportunity under the law versus equality of outcomes. The progressive movement today seems to think that justice means equality of outcome. 
that everyone has the same. Justice biblically defined has been that all people will be treated by the same rules under the law. So that nobody is treated better because they're wealthy or worse because they're poor. Nobody's treated better because they're uh, of one skin color and worse because they're of another skin color. Um, There's an age-old illustration that people use for this of of the football team, right? Uh, What does it mean to be just in a football game? What are the referees supposed to do? Well, modern justice would say that the aim of modern-day referees is to try and make sure that by the end of the game, the score is equal. Okay, that everything's the same. As opposed to what we know to be true, which is the goal of referees is to make sure that everybody's playing by the same rules. So that one team doesn't have an unfair advantage over the other because of a violation of the principles of the game. Government is to make sure that there are principles in place, rules in place, and that they apply universally to everybody. Government is not to guarantee outcomes. At least that's not what we see in Romans 13. Um, Okay. And then number six. The Bible does warn us about false weights and false balances, as well as using interest to take advantage of people. There are so many verses that we could use uh, to show this. It's all over the Proverbs, for example. Uh, We see Hosea the prophet speaking to the people of God about this issue. Uh, We find it in Psalm 15, verse 5. I'll just read that one to you. Psalm 15, verse 5. So he's talking about who shall sojourn in the tent, who shall dwell on God's holy hill, and uh, who is the person to to whom God looked. It is he who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who who does these things shall never be moved. So God's people are not to be marked by using false weights, false balances to take advantage of people. Uh, Me seeing that you're in a desperate circumstance, and therefore I'm going to charge you more. You ever had your car break down while you're on a trip? Right? You don't get to go to your normal mechanic that you know well and have a relationship with. You're kind of at the mercy of whoever these people are in this city, and and they, they, they know you're not from town. And you're like, I sure hope they don't, you know, charge me an arm and a leg, right? Well, that's, that's what we're talking about here, that you don't take advantage of people who are in more difficult circumstances and treat them by different rules than, than others. Um, we're also not to charge undue interest, right? This is the problem with uh, those check-in-to-cash kind of places uh, that prey on people in the midst of their hardship and say, oh, yeah, we'll give you, you know, an advance on your payday, but you're going to owe us, whoa, right? Ridiculous amount of interest that's taking advantage of the poor. Yeah, I don't think it's right. These verses do raise questions about whether it's ethical for our government to artificially debase our currency or to inflate our currency, as they sometimes do. Um, These verses raise questions about the Federal Reserve artificially raising or lowering interest rates uh, based on their own assessments and whims. But those are issues on which Christians who know the Bible often disagree. And so I don't think those are issues on which we ought to just take a biblical stance and say, no, this is always right for everybody who's a Christian. You ought to believe that. There's definitely Christian liberty, I think, when it comes to those kinds of of issues. I have opinions on those issues, but we're not going to talk about those right now. So a few, a few conclusions. This is just to summarize and bring it all together. Number one, we have to reject the notion that income inequality is itself an evil. It is not. There is nothing unjust about people being unequal in their income or in the resources that they've been entrusted with. There's just nothing unjust about that. We must always affirm as Christians that greediness and an uncharitable spirit is evil. And it is. We as Christians ought to lead the way in caring for the poor and those who are in desperate circumstances. We should strongly urge those who have much 
that one-tenth of one percent who's making hundreds of millions or even billions a year, the church ought to be urging them to consider the plight of the people around them. We ought to be urging a spirit of charity and generosity. But I think we need to be very careful in our thinking about the idea of a government forcibly redistributing wealth. And we need to recognize it's not something that Scripture calls for governments to do. My own view is that government should seek to provide equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. Uh, My own view is that the more power you give to the state, the more that power can be used against us in the future. And we know that human beings are sinful. And when we talk about governments, we're not talking about an abstract idea. Governments are people. Governments are made up of sinful, fallen people like you and like me. We ought to honor them. We ought to respect them. We ought to pray for them. But we also need to be wise concerning the power that we give to states. And then, and this is my last thought, I think we need to always keep in mind the book of Revelation's teaching about the beast. Bet you didn't expect me to go there, but that's where we're going. Uh, the beast. Uh, sometimes people think about the beast and they think about the Antichrist and they think they're the same. They're not the same. Okay, Two totally different things. The Antichrist isn't even in the book of Revelation. But the beast in Revelation uh, comes out of Daniel. It is the picture of a government that uses its power to please the masses so that the people love their state, the people love their government, but the government is also using that power to persecute the people of God. So for Christians, there is meant to be, I think, a little bit of a a healthy skepticism and uh, a nervousness about power given to the state because Revelation promises that in situation after situation, society after society, these governments are going to rise up that are going to take on roles that God never gave them to take. The people are going to love the governments because the governments are giving them what they want. And then the power that the governments take is going to be used against the people of God uh, to do them harm. And so I think we always need to be wary uh, as we see more and more power going to the state. So we're kind of out of time. Um, So maybe just one or two questions if you have them. Does anybody have a, a question?